So I want to begin this morning just by asking a question, asking you to ask a question, to think about this question in your mind. Um, what is the greatest threat for humankind? What is our greatest problem? It's not the coronavirus, in case that's what came into your mind. Our problems are much greater than that. What is the greatest threat to humankind, or what is our greatest problem? And not violence and crime and war, uh, but what lies behind that, what causes that? Not sickness and disease and death, but what causes that? And not poverty and famine and oppression, but what causes that? That's our greatest threat. Is it something outside of us, or is it something inside of us? Is it something that comes from within us? And now this morning, as we continue our study through the letter to the Romans, we want to look at a passage which, in my mind, answers that question unequivocally, clearly. And so you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll be reading from verse 16. What is the greatest threat? What is the greatest problem that humankind has? What is the greatest obstacle that we need to overcome? Romans chapter 1, verse 16 Listen to the Word of God. This is inspired. This is true completely. This is what God has given for the instruction of your soul and your mind and the moving of your will. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So let's pray as we come to God's word and ask him to reveal himself to us through it. Father, as much as your wrath is being revealed, we praise you that you have revealed your glory, your goodness, your power in creation, in the things that have been made, in the things that are all around us. We see that you are the living God and you are creative and you are powerful and you are vast and you are beautiful and you are clever, wise. We see all of these things clearly. Every single day they confront us and affront us. And yet even more than that, you have revealed yourself in your Son and in your written word. And we know, Lord, that your written word is meant to show us who you are and who we are in relation to you. And you've given us your Spirit and he comes and he gives us understanding and he opens our eyes and he convicts our hearts and he applies your word to each one of us individually and personally. He is the great comforter, the great teacher, the great revealer who works through your word to magnify your Son in in it and through it in our hearts. And Father, that is the work that we are asking you to do even this morning. Father, use your word and show us Christ and show us ourself and our ugliness and our fallenness and our unrighteousness and show us him in all his glory and his goodness and give us faith to lay hold afresh and anew of this wonderful gospel which is your answer for our sin. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen. So what is the greatest problem that humankind faces? Well, I think in this problem we can see what it is. The wrath of God. The wrath of God and the indwelling sin. The the depth of our depravity which evokes the wrath of God. And so in, in many ways our problem is both within and without. Because the wrath of God is a reaction. It's an external threat. In fact, it's the greatest threat in the universe. You do not want to make yourself an enemy of God. You you do not want the most powerful person in the universe to be angry with you and to set that anger on you. But that anger is a reaction to something within, a problem within, an all-pervasive problem, our unrighteousness within. And so this morning I want to consider firstly the the reality of divine wrath or the external problem and then the nature of human sin or the internal problem. And so firstly, the reality of divine wrath. Verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So let's ask the question, what is the nature of this wrath that it's talking about? A simple definition of God's wrath would be God's holy war against sin and those who perpetrate it. 
God's holy war against sin and those who perpetrate it. Uh, one author said this, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction of His holiness. Another author said, As long as God is God, He cannot behold with indifference that His creation is destroyed and His holy will trodden underfoot. Therefore, He meets sin with His mighty, annihilating reaction. That's the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God. There is no greater reaction against sin than God's reaction. And, 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 and so who or against who or what is this wrath directed? And the text tells us there in verse 18, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It, uh, the text goes on to give us this vivid picture of what this ungodliness and unrighteousness looks like. So this is really a summary statement. And, and it describes sin in all its ugliness, in all its aspects. And we can't ignore what, what this text has to say in its context. Because this, in, this text is the beginning of an argument that Paul begins to make as he, he first describes sin and the extent of sin and the depth of sin and the features of sin. But then he goes on to conclude by Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.10 None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so although we look at this picture of sin, we must realize the ultimate conclusion is this is not a description of sinners out there. This is a description of every single person. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is not a problem out there with wicked people out there. This is a problem with every single one of us. No one is righteous. No, not one. So against who or what is God's anger directed? Men and women, every single one of us, you and me, in our sinfulness. And that's why we are enemies of God and under His wrath. When is this wrath revealed? That's another important question to ask. I mean, the scripture reveals that there's a, a great and terrible day of the Lord as it's often described in the Old Testament. Some future day when God's wrath is going to be poured out on humankind against all their ungodliness and sinfulness in all its fury and fullness. And the flood of Genesis 6 where God annihilated the earth, that is nothing compared to the great judgment that awaits in that great day. It's a fearful day which awaits us when, when the, the God's wrath reaches its fullness and is finally poured out. And if that were not the worst, the Scripture speaks of an eternal wrath, a heavenly wrath, a place of eternal torment away from the presence of the Lord, a place where people, sinners, will experience God's continual anger at sin, His revulsion for sin, always and only forever. But this text is talking about something else, something before those, that great and terrible day and that eternal hell. It's talking about God's wrath presently being revealed. 
That's what verse 18 says. The wrath of God is revealed, is being revealed. And as I mentioned last week, this Greek word here doesn't talk about truths that are being unfolded. Or, or explained, information that's been disclosed, but act activities of God, plans of God, actions of God that are being unfolded, that are being enacted. And it's a present tense verb. So what this text is saying is God's wrath in some form, not that great and terrible day of the Lord, not the eternal hell when His wrath reaches full measure, but even now as we speak, in some way, God's anger against sin, God's revulsion for sin is now being expressed already in the present tense. God is acting against sin as we speak. Although the worst of God's wrath is reserved for the future, yet it's already being manifested. God is not sitting idly by and ignoring sin and pretending it doesn't exist. It would be contrary to His nature to do that. He is already acting against sin. So how, we might ask? Because clearly the world has not been dissolved in fire and fury. People are not dropping down dead where, you know, where they are. That is not how God's wrath is being revealed at present. So how is it being revealed? How is God acting against sin and against sinners now in the present, this side of heaven, this side of hell, this side of that great and terrible day of the Lord? Well, the text makes it clear. Verse 24. Therefore, because of their sinful response to him, God gave them up. Verse 26. God gave them up, or God gave them over. Verse 28, second part of verse 28. God gave them up. To, to hand someone over, that's what this word, these words mean. To give someone up. To, to allow them to be taken captive, to, to hand them over to the enemy, as it were, and let them dr be dragged off into captivity. That's the image here. It's a mercy when God restrains sin. It's a mercy when God restrains sin. It's a judgment when He leaves people in their sin when he leaves people to pursue their sin unhindered, unfettered. God puts governments in this world uh, to restrain people from giving full expression to their sin. God gives children, parents, to restrain them from giving full expression to their sin. God brings all kinds of authorities into this world and even catastrophes like tsunamis and earthquakes and pestilence to stop sin from laying a hold of the human race and, and, and running through the entire human race and consuming it as it did in the days of Noah. But in the lives of individuals and in the lives of families and in the lives of communities and churches and countries and nations, when people continually pursue their sin and, and, and when they don't look at their sin and turn from their sin to God, but instead turn away from God to their sin. At some point, God says, enough. And He gives them over to their sin. And He says, you want this? You're continually asking for this? You're continually pursuing this? Have what you want. And have it in abundance. Have as much of it as you want. In verse 27 says, what happens? We receive, they receive in themselves the due penalty for the error. You see, sin has its own payment. 
sin has its own cost. Yes, it's pleasurable for a while. Yes, there are benefits to sin in the short term. But even this side of heaven, sin has a penalty. It has a cost. It has a pain. There are very real consequences when people pursue their sin unchecked. AIDS and other diseases. Wars. Abuse. Addictions. Broken marriages. Death. Sin does so much damage on every level of society, so much damage to society, to individuals, to their lives, to their future. If you haven't seen a life ripped apart from sin, you haven't lived in this world. Sin has its own consequences. So let me just stop here for a moment and speak to parents and to children in particular. Children, you must understand that your parents are put into your life as a grace, as a mercy. God doesn't want to allow you to give full expression to your sinful nature. And parents, this is one of your responsibilities as a parent, to restrain sin in your children. And that means the parent-child relationship is a war. It's not always going to be wonderful and peaceful and everyone in agreement as to what is required. Much of the time, it's going to be a war. It's going to be parents telling their children, this is wrong, don't do this, stop that, this is going to hurt you. And children realize this. Sin is always pleasurable in the moment, or often pleasurable in the moment, but it has consequences, far-reaching and damaging consequences. And your parents are the ones who love you and are trying to protect you from this. Permissive parents are not loving parents. Parents that give up on fighting sin in the life of their children are not doing the loving thing, especially not to just keep peace in the home. When God hands us over to our sin, it's an evidence of His judgment. This is his wrath when he finally says, that's it. Have what you want. And we begin to taste the bitterness and the gall that goes along with sin. This is our external problem, God and his reaction against sin. And that is not going to change as long as we are who we are. We are always in danger because of who we are within. And so secondly, I want to look at the nature of human sin the nature of human sin. Now, we've just read through this passage, and to be honest, most often when I've read this passage, I've thought to myself, man, this is such an appropriate description of the world that we live in. As I look around at the world, I just see so much of what's described here, immorality and sin in all its forms and excess and covetousness and unrighteousness and evil and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. And man, I, I just look at that and I say, wow, the world is a mess. And this describes that mess so well. But that is not how God wants us to read this text because it has a context. And the very next paragraph after this text, look at what it says. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Look at what it says in your Bibles. Therefore, as a result of this description, as a result of this reality, therefore, how should you respond? What should you be thinking? Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. 
every one of you who, like me, has been looking over there at all those sinners over there and seeing all the mess over there in the rest of society, in the world, in those families and those marriages, listen to what this text says. You have no excuse, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, do the very same things. I remember reading this the first time it really hit home to me and being convicted. And, and you know, my re response was, Lord, this is just not true. I do other things, I do bad things, but I don't do the very same things. And I actually had an argument with God about this. And I actually, in a sense, in my mind, challenged God, God, this is just not true. I don't do the very same things. Man, has God shown me to be wrong. That's almost 20 years ago. And the, more, the longer I live, the more true this statement is in my understanding. We're not supposed to be looking at the problem out there. We're not supposed to be pointing all our fingers about, you know, at these sinners out there. We're supposed to be looking at the problem in here, in our own hearts. God is giving us insight here into the depth of our own depravity. He's asking us to see what lies within. Apart from the gospel and apart from Jesus Christ, this is who we are. This is what we become. This is what we do. And God has left in us the remnants of the sinful nature, in us believers. He's left the remnants of the sinful nature as a reminder of this reality so that it would continually drive us back to Jesus Christ and the gospel. To put it another way, God is describing here what the journey looks like from temptation to sin. He's describing the features of this journey. He's describing the characteristics, the milestones along the way. Before we were Christians, we would make frequent and long journeys into this, into this, along this pathway into sin. Now as Christians, we make less frequent journeys and we don't stay as long. God has brought us home, and that's no longer where we live. But we do sometimes make trips into there. And that should be a reminder that this is who we are apart from Jesus Christ, and this is what we do. So I want you to have this description as we go through this passage. Forget about looking at all those evil people out there and say, this is who I am apart from Jesus Christ. And as, as, as apart from me laying hold of this gospel each and every day, afresh and anew, this is who I am. So what does it describe here? I've, I've kind of taken some repeated themes rather than going verse for verse from you know, verse 19 through. Uh, um, Paul seems to repeat himself uh, around some key themes and, and I've drawn those themes out. This is the perspective of sin. These are the features of sin. This is the milestones that lie along the pathway of sin. Corrupt thinking, misdirected worship, dishonorable passions, de degraded bodies, and broken relationships. This is what it looks like, and I want to go through each one of these um, in turn. The first one is corrupt thinking. Corrupt thinking. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
we actually force it down. We actually squash it and then throw something over the top so that we don't have to look at it. That's what the text is saying. Verse 21 says, They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. There's a folly to sin. There's an ignorance to sin. There's, there's plain truth, which is plain for everyone to see. But sin makes us fools. I mean, you think about what this text is saying. What can be known about God, verse 19, is plain to them. Why? Because God has revealed it. Now, when the God of the universe decides he's going to disclose something about himself, you better make sure he communicates clearly. There's no ambiguity when God communicates. So how is it that generation of generation of some of the, the greatest intellectuals of every generation and culture cannot see what creation plainly preaches? That God exists and He's powerful and He rules over all. Truth, this suppression of the truth makes us fools. We are self-deceived. That's the nature of sin. It has a, a self-deceiving element to it. The plain truth is, is plain for everyone to see. All of you can see that I am a white man. It's only a fool that will stand before you and insist that I'm a black woman. Think about it. We're living in a society where people are doing that. Don't call me a white man, I'm a black woman. And we're going, <laughs> not with my eyes, you're not. But sin has a self-deceiving element. To it. We, we, we willfully suppress the truth. We turn away from it. We become completely futile and foolish in our thinking. Look at verse 25. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. There's a deliberate swapping here. We don't only resist the truth and try and ignore the truth and get it out of sight. We deliberately swap out the truth of God for a lie. We come up with a lie. That can justify why we're not living and thinking and feeling in accordance with the truth. God made me this way. I've always been like this. This is my nature. Who are you to judge? You don't know me. We don't just reject the truth. We come up with a storyline. We come up with a very powerful storyline designed to justify why we're ignoring the truth. Verse 28, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, mind, a perverted mind, a dysfunctional mind. We're living in a society, we see that all over the place. But remember, don't look there first. How are you guilty of this? How are you guilty of, of suppressing the truth of God in your life? How are you guilty of ignoring what is plain for everyone to see. How are you guilty with coming up with lies to justify your sin? Truth matters. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus said in John 8.32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
He said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper, someone to help us, to come alongside us forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And this is why we as believers need to saturate our mind in God's truth. We need to study it to make sure we understand it correctly. We need to apply it to the lies in our lives. We need to speak it to one another in love. We need to help one another hear this truth because sometimes we become self-deceived. We will willfully deceive ourselves. We start believing our own lies. Every time we fall into sin, we've been believing We've been convincing ourselves of certain lies until the point we believe them. We've been lying to ourselves. I can't help myself. I don't need this. I don't have to put up with this person. My parents don't really know what they're talking about. They don't have my best interests at heart. They don't know what's best for me. I must have this. I can't be happy without this. God would want me to have this. I don't know the lies that you have fashioned and formed. All I can say is that you've got powerful statements that you tell yourself over and over and over again before you sin, leading up to sin, in order to justify what you are doing or about to do. These tailor-made distortions of reality, these powerful ditties that you repeat to, to yourself over and over and over again till you believe them more than what God says, and therefore you sin. And so if we're going to fight this uh, decline into sin, if we're going to stop going down this pathway, one of the things we need to do, one of the things you need to do, is identify these powerful, deceiving statements that you keep making to yourself. And what does God actually have to say about them? What is the truth that would rob them of their power? Second, misdirected worship misdirected worship and this has has to do with the value exchange so we exchange the truth of god for a lie and we also exchange our values what is important and this all comes down to idolatry or false worship instead of worshiping god we find something in creation something else other than god that we find worthy of worship worthy of sacrifice worthy of giving myself to, worthy of giving my time and my money and my effort in pursuit of, something other than God we put in His place and make supremely valuable to ourselves. And then we give ourselves to it. That's what we worship. What we worship is simply what we give our time and our money and our talents to, what we regard as most important, most valuable in the universe. Look at verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, so they are without excuse. So verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Notice that even though they knew God, even though they knew He exists, even though that much was clear to them, they didn't give Him the honor He deserved as God or give thanks to Him. They no longer give God honor. They no longer value His name and His character above all things. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. It's a value exchange. It's a ridiculously foolish one. 
The glory of God, that word there means the weightiness, the heaviness, the value, the supreme worth of God is exchanged for something that is wood and clay and straw. Something that has no real value. And you go, why would you ever buy with so much gold something that is so worthless? That's what we do in idolatry. They worship and serve, verse 25, the creature rather than the creator. We were created to worship God, to give ourselves our time, our talent, our money, our energy, to live our lives for Him, who's the one who's forever blessed, verse 25. He's the one who has all fullness and all glory and all blessing and all fullness come from Him, but we turn from Him and give ourselves to our idols. Worship has to do with what we value, what we regard as of supreme value and worth. And idolatry is the great value exchange. We exchange what is of supreme worth for what is worthless in creation. And we give ourselves to that as our God. I never really understood idolatry or Hinduism until I went to India and I saw it in action. One point two billion people serving thirty three million different gods. They come in every shape and size. They worship in every conceivable way. There's all kinds of different rituals and sacrifices, but behind it lies this one simple belief. Behind all of that multifaceted idolatry is this simple belief that this God has something that I want, something that I need, something that I value, and I have to find a way to get this God to give me that thing. And so there's gods of fertility, there's gods of prosperity, there's gods of protection and health. There's multiple gods to accommodate the multiple things that people really value. And all these different rituals and mantras and gurus and people you consult, all of it goes around, what do I need to do to get this God to give me what I really want? And that has opened my eyes to the reality that much of, as, of what is passed off as Christianity is idolatry. That is the truth. Much of what's happening among so-called Christians and in so-called churches is the same thing that's happening in Hinduism all over the place. Jesus Christ has been replaced with the many gods of Hinduism and he's become the supreme idol. And we, you know, our religion is all about how can I manipulate Jesus Christ to get what I want? How can I get the wealth? How can I get the prosperity? How can I get the job promotion? How can I protect my health? How can I, how can I get Jesus Christ to serve me? And our churches are full of this kind of idolatry. It's false worship when we come to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, you must serve me. Because true worship acknowledges that you are of supreme worth. And to know you is the greatest thing in all the universe. I don't want to use Jesus Christ to get something else. I want Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the means that I get God in all His glory and fullness. It's the means that I'm fulfilled in Him. And if He gives me nothing else but Himself, I have everything I want and need. True worship, I come and lay myself down before the Lord and say, I am here to serve you. Your pleasure is my devotion. And how many churches are practicing that kind of worship? Are you? Are you? To stop going down these pathways that lead to sin, we need to think about the lies that we are believing and telling ourselves. And we need to think about the things that we are truly valuing and ask God to show our idols and to crush them. And believe me, that is a painful prayer because there is nothing more painful than having your idols crushed and yet there is nothing more important to the true worship of the true God. He is completely committed. James 4, he's a jealous God and he is completely committed to crushing every idol in your heart so that he alone can be worshipped because he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. He's, he alone is the one who can fulfill rightfully all those desires and the purpose of your life. Corrupt thinking, misdirected worship, thirdly, dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. This is the third feature or characteristic of the unrighteousness of man that evokes God's wrath and anger. Corrupt thinking, misdirected worship, dishonorable passions. So sin not only corrupts our thinking, distorts our value system, but it perverts our passions, our emotions, our desires. And let's not confuse these two things, right? Because I can get very angry when somebody messes with something that I desire, my idol, what I truly value. But what I value and the anger I feel are two different things. And they both get corrupted because of sin. Some of the things that we desire are not bad. Many of the things that we desire are not bad. But sin corrupts our passions. Sin twists our emotions and our feelings so that they're directed towards the wrong objects to the wrong extent. The proportion and the object of our desires becomes corrupted, distorted, manipulated by sin. Look at verse 24. God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. The, the impure, unclean things that they strongly desired in their hearts, God gave them over to them. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, perverse, corrupt, inappropriate, disproportionate passions become the order of the day. Verse 27, the text highlights here the corruption of sexual desires. And listen carefully, I don't think he's bringing out this the corruption of sexual desires, yeah, because of the, they're the worst kind of sin or even because they're the most pervasive kind of sin simply because they're the clearest example of the corruption of desires. They're the clearest example to us. Paul can, can highlight this. He can put this up there and say, can't you see how desires can get so corrupted by sin so that we desire what is detestable? We eat our own vomit He's holding this example up, not so that we could point fingers and go, whoa, those kinds of desires are terrible. Remember, that's not what this text is about. It's about us realizing the extent 
to which our desires can get misdirected and corrupted. Why is this the clearest example? Because throughout the creation order, God has made two genders. And it's obvious to anyone who's even got a, a basic understanding of anatomy how God intends for sexual desire to operate and be expressed. One of the most basic desires that we have as people is that sexual attraction to the opposite sex. And it's a beautiful thing. And we see it happening all over, and we see how it results in marriage and love and devotion and intimacy and the propagation of every species. And yet Paul can say, even that most natural, obviously natural desire can get so corrupted by sin that women give up their natural relations. Look at that, verse 26. They exchange what? Natural relations. Natural. For those that are what? Contrary to nature. The very basic, most basic human drives get corrupted. And the men likewise give up natural relations for women. And they were consumed. Notice verse 27. They were consumed for passion, with passion for one another. They burned, as some um, translations put it, they burned with desire for one another. They were determined to fulfill these corrupt desires, which leads people to use and misuse their bodies in the most degrading ways. And for the sake of innocent ears, I won't go into the specifics of how people then dishonor their bodies among themselves, how they commit, as the text says there, verse 27, men committing shameless acts with men. If we'll just stop for a moment and, and sense, in, innately we sense there's something shameful with this, and they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's not elevate these sins to some kind of pedestal, like they are worse than any other sin and more pervasive than any other sin. They're just a very, very clear example. And we could add to Paul's, you know, this whole gender confusion. Such a clear example of just how corrupted our desires can become. The desire for justice gets corrupted in revenge. The desire for food gets corrupted in gluttony. The, the good desire for rest gets corrupted in laziness. The desire for significance gets corrupted in pride and selfish ambition. The desire for security gets corrupted in anxiety and fear. The desire for dominion gets corrupted in domination. And so we could go through every kind of human desire that because of sin gets misdirected in its object and in its extent. And we start to get controlled by our desires rather than we control them. And so I get so angry that I could shoot you because you cut me off on the highway. I'll take your life and kill you for a cell phone. I'll rape another woman. I'll abuse another child. I'll steal money from a helpless widow. I'll cheat and defraud and bribe. I'll raise a war and start a rebellion just so that I can get what I want because I must have it, because it controls me. Both the object and the strength of these desires becomes corrupted. It's desires that control me rather than desires that I control. Beware of living by your emotions. 
I'm not saying try to live without emotions. I'm not saying that these emotions are bad. God has given us this full range of emotions to motivate us to righteous action. But be aware that your emotions should not control you and your emotions can start getting directed towards the wrong object and they can become wrong in their magnitude and they can lead you down this pathway of sin. They are not neutral. Emotions that are God-given and controlled by the Spirit are wonderful. Emotions that are controlled by the flesh lead to all kinds of sin. Anger, fear, anxiety, and much more. So corrupt thinking, misdirected worship, dishonorable passions. Next week I want to look at the remaining two here, the two features of, of human sinfulness, degraded bodies and broken relationships. Really looking at how these first three find expression in our bodies, in our actions, and they, and they end up corrupting our bodies. And then they find expression in, our, in communities, in families and the various expressions of community and how we relate to other people. I didn't want to stop here, though, just thinking about sin. I wanted to stop here pointing you back to the gospel. And to do that, I just want to highlight again for you the grammatical flow of this argument. Let's not lose the flow of Paul's thinking in this text. He says in Romans 15, one, Romans chapter 1, verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. Why? Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm confident in the gospel. I'm excited about the gospel. I'm passionate about the gospel. That's why I want to preach it. Why, Paul? Because in it, in this gospel, is the power of God for the salvation of people to rescue them from his wrath, to rescue them from the sinfulness for everyone who believes. Why, Paul? Why does it contain the power of God? Why does it convey the power of God? Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is being unfolded. God is busy acting through the gospel to establish his righteousness, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. A righteousness that is not by works, not by performance, not by your effort. A righteousness that God gives to those who believe in Jesus Christ. For the wrath of God is being revealed against heaven. Now as we speak, God is busy pouring out his righteous indignation against sinners everywhere. who are turning, to, turning away from him to their sin. This is should be a motivation for us to be confident in and excited about this gospel. Paul's saying, as I look around at the world, I just see the brokenness that sin causes on every level. And that just makes me want to preach the good news. As, as I look around and I see the bad news everywhere, you know, behind the, the very thin layer of makeup and the very feeble smiles that people put on, behind the glamour and glitz of nice jewellery and fancy cars and nice houses and fancy clothes is a deep, deep brokenness and enslavement to sin. And it's only going to get worse apart from the gospel. That bad news is only going to go from bad to worse if those people do not hear 
what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Does that not motivate you? But even beyond that, Paul is saying, there is no place for the self-righteous in the church of Jesus Christ. There is no place for self-righteousness in the church of Jesus Christ. For us to be stand up before people and say, I'm okay, I'm all right, I'm doing well, I'm good in myself. There's no place for that. There's no place to think I'm better than anyone else in the church of Jesus Christ. There's only a place for sinners who are humbled as they look into their own hearts and see the remnants of sin still there. See what they are and what they would be and how th what they would become apart from Jesus Christ. And Paul wants us to look in there so that the dark backdrop of our sin could form a relief in which we can see more clearly the brightness and the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, that's where our gaze is. We don't gaze on our sin. We don't become defeated and obsessed with our sin, but we let our sin look, um, drive us to look up and see something greater than our sin, God's grace in Jesus Christ. And it looks so much more glorious when we remember what we've been saved from and what we've been saved for. And so my encouragement to you is each and every day, this is why you need the gospel, because the remnants of this nature are in you. And unless you look to Jesus Christ every day, it will consume you. So look to him and receive God's righteousness through faith in him. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that when you looked down on us and you saw this and you looked into us, into our hearts, into our desires, into our motivations, you saw this and this produced a revulsion, a reaction a righteous anger. And yet it didn't just produce that. It produced a righteous anger which made you act in love to establish a righteousness in Jesus Christ that could be a gift to all those who would receive it. Father, what an amazing gospel. What an amazing testimony to who you are, to your character, to act in such benevolent love, undeserved grace and favor. Father, help us to be like you. Help us to think like you. Help us when we see our sin to look to Jesus Christ and put our full confidence in him alone. And Father, when we see the corruption in the world around us, help us not to judge and condemn and look down upon, but help us like you to have compassion and grace and mercy and to act with the gospel and hold it out to the world. Father, we want the world to see not self-righteous Christians, but the only righteous one, Jesus Christ, who in love gave himself for our sin. Please help the world to see that. In his name we pray. Amen.